joining us once again for part two of Flattening the Curve. I am a president of the McNair Achievement Programs here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm also president emeritus of the Dr. Ronald McNair Foundation, which is named for my brother, uh, in honor of my brother, Dr. Ronald McNair, who was one of the astronauts aboard Space Shuttle Challenger and died in January 1986. Now, uh, we're glad that you're able to work with us or be with us again this evening. We have some wonderful panelists that we want to share with you. And what we'd like to start off with is explaining our why, why this forum. And my why is simply this. I wanted to get Ronald McNair scholars together to collaborate with other professionals to see if we can come up with some discussion about the impact of COVID-19 and the, I guess, the devastation that it is having right now on the African-American community. And also, I wanted to, uh, but equally important, what I wanted to do is to be proactive and create solutions, very viable solutions that to address the effects of COVID-19 on our beloved community. Now, I want to certainly let Linnell Williams, uh, Linnell Williams is a person who, uh, who helped coordinate this. He's a, uh, she's at Harvard University. She's a PhD student, a PhD candidate now. She would kill me if I, if I said student. And she raised her hand when I asked for someone to lead this. So thank you so much, Linnell. And of course, last but not least, I'm very grateful to Linnell's mentor, and that is in the form of Dr. Trina Williams. And Dr. Williams is a graduate of Hampton <laughs> University. Close. Uh, Dr. Trina Coleman, pardon me. <laughs> yes. uh, she's, a, uh, she's a graduate of Hampton University, and also I'd like to give thanks to our distinguished group of uh, panelists and scholars. So now, Dr. Coleman, would you take it from here? Yes, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for participating this evening in part two, where we're going to talk about our lives, our neighborhoods, and our education. I'm Dr. Trina Coleman. I am a graduate of Hampton University, as uh, Mr. Nair stated. I have a PhD in nuclear theory, and I'm interested in this for a few reasons. Uh, one thing is we, we are having conversations in pockets about uh, the Black community, be it crime, police reform, COVID, whatever. And I think that this forum brings together unique perspective on, on the plight of Black America during uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And also having um, my show Beyond the Classroom on HBCU Nation Smart TV and HBCU iRadio, we are building a platform of, con of content from our people. Uh, we want to take this type of form and put it in a place where people can access it as opposed to it being done in silos. So I'm very excited about us doing these forums. I'm excited about us um, working together. I'm excited about Linnell and her PhD candidacy and um, putting this together and having that, that drive that she has about justice and injustices and wanting to make things right. 
on top of doing all of her research. So thank you all for coming and thank you for your respective input that you have from your area of expertise. And Linnell. Hi, I'm Linnell Williams. I'm a PhD candidate, as you guys have heard two times already um, <laughs> at Harvard University. Um, I am um, a soft matter physicist slash biophysicist. I study the self-assembly of viruses. Um, in addition, I am also the founder of the Women of Color Project, which is a project focused on uh, women of color who are interested in STEM and applying to graduate school um, and eventually going on to do their PhD in uh, pursue academic careers. This is something that I've kind of always been passionate about. So when Carl um, reached out to me about the impact of COVID-19 in the Black community, we brainstormed together about uh, things that we could possibly do um, and uh, again executed this forum. Um, I'm very kind of proud of, of what it has become and I'm super excited for the conversation we're going to have today. Um, and so I'm going to give it back to Trina uh, to introduce our panelists. All right, well, panelists. Uh... From, from my view, I'm gonna start from Dr. Maurice Hobson. Dr. Maurice Hobson is here tonight with us and uh, he, his specialty is history. And I am excited to hear about his perspective on uh, the history of black folks in this country and how the impacts of racism, et cetera, have shaped how this pandemic is impacting us now. So more, uh, Dr. Hobson, could you speak a little bit about yourself? Sure, so we're just doing introductions here, right? Right, introductions. <laughs> I am Maurice Hobson. Uh, my day job is that I'm an associate professor of African-American studies and historian at Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, however, um, I, I do several other things. And so uh, documentaries, um, podcasts, all kinds of different things I've been able to serve as chief historian for. Uh, I, by nature, am a historian trained in political science, sociology, and economics. So my methodology is not just based in an archive. I crunch numbers. I can do all kinds of different things, which is why I fit in Africana studies, uh, because I have multiple methodologies. Um, in terms of this conversation, I, I, I feel led to say to you all that uh, I am the son of a world-renowned epidemiologist, a late world-renowned epidemi world epidemiologist. I grew up in labs, cleaning pipettes and, 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 you know, cleaning labs and doing all kinds of different things. And my father was one of those kind of persons to where he worked on sickle cell. And I used to tell him before he passed away, I said, Dad, if you come up with the cure for sickle cell, I have to be the one to convince the people to take it. So what I've been able to do is marry the humanities and the hard sciences and meet in the middle at the social science, uh, as a social scientist. And so I uh, look forward to talking with you all today. Thank you. Next, we have Dr. Michael Johnson. Hello, everyone. My name is Michael Johnson. Uh, I got my PhD in biochemistry and biophysics from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, although I still root for Duke, which is where I got my undergrad from. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I actually got my music degree at Duke. Uh, I transitioned very smoothly from music to biochemistry and biophysics as one does. Uh, no, uh, but anyway, I, uh, from there, I went on to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital where I did two postdoctoral fellowships, one in infectious disease and one in immunology. And I'm currently an assistant professor at the University of Arizona in the Department of Immunobiology where I study how bacteria process things like nutrients and metals. And I'm actively trying to figure out 
different anti, uh, bio, uh, antibiot antibacterial compounds that might work against them, and also see if they have any dual purposes against uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is the agent that causes COVID-19. Okay, thank you. Dr. Chiquita Mays, how are you today? I'm really good, Trina. How are you? I'm good. Good Introduce evening. Yourself. <laughs> good evening. And I am an electrical engineer and received my bachelor's degree from North Carolina Anti State University, where I was a Ronald E. McNair scholar there. And I have my PhD in industrial and organizational psychology. In this space, I am an organizational behavior and organizational change specialist. Uh, so I specialize in all things problems, all problem solving. And so I really help organizations and help governments really specialize in helping them move through change. And so I have been working with the largest health system in Georgia in terms of the COVID-19 task force and really helping them in the change management, helping them move through uh, the community, helping on both sides of the spectrum uh, with the physician side as well as with the community side. So just excited to be here. Thank you. All right, Dr. Khadija Ali Coleman, welcome to the panel and let people know who you are. Well, hello, everybody. Um, my name is Dr. Khadija Ali Coleman. I can never get tired of saying that. I am a newly minted doctor. I graduated on May 14th from Morgan State uh -huh. University, although I passed my dissertation and I defended my dissertation successfully on the day that will forever be ingrained in our memory because that's the day that everyone got quarantined, Friday the 13th, <laughs> 2020. <laughs> um, so I, I, it's just a pleasure to be here. Um, to interact again with Dr. Trina and Carl McNair, who's just a blessing, and Linnell Williams, we are so proud of you. You're just a phenomenal woman. And so it's just great to be here. I, um, so I just graduated with my doctorate. However, I was a McNair scholar many moons ago, probably before Linnell was born. Um, <laughs> I was a McNair scholar at UMBC um, and at, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, I'm sorry, acronyms. Um, and I actually developed my major at UMBC through their interdisciplinary studies. At the time, that's what it was called. They recently changed it to something different, but um, it was the ability to create a program and it was African-American studies and mass media. And then I went on to Towson University to get my master's in 2000. And so um, I have just a very, interdisciplinary career as both a media specialist. I've taught communication studies and fine and performing arts for about 10 years in community college settings. My doctorate is actually in higher education with the emphasis on community college leadership. But I also, for about 12 years now, have an arts organization called Liberated Muse um, Arts Group, where we, um, we're very multidisciplinary, where we um, produce books, we publish books, we produce theater, music, but all through the lens of people of the African diaspora. 
And that's integrated also into my work as an educator. I'm a teaching artist. I've worked with museums. Most recently, I was a scholar in residence at the Prince George's African American Museum and Cultural Center in my state of Maryland. Um, but I also am co-founder of a very brand new, spanking new um, partnership between me and um, the prolific researcher, Dr. Cheryl Field-Smith. Um, and our work centers on homeschooling. Um, and we're called black family homeschool educators and scholars and we basically started this past may because i had the privilege of being offered a publishing deal um, around homeschooling and so i wanted to have a co-editor and why not start with the best and dr fields um smith was very gracious to partner with me um, as a co-editor for the book and from that we developed um, I call it, it's, it's an incubator of sorts where we really wanted to um, connect our research and our um, ensuing activities that we knew we were going to engage in with homeschooling families themselves. I am a homeschooling parent. I've been homeschooling my daughter off and on for 12 years. And so, and I come from a family of educators. Actually, my great great my great grandfather has a school in Louisiana named after him, I.A. Lewis in Ruston, Louisiana. And um, he and my grandmother were among the first black educators to, to be funded by Rosenwald grants. And so that's a whole other story. But the legacy of education um, is in my family history. And so homeschooling is really a return to what I think is the legacy of black people in this country. So hopefully today on this panel, I'll talk about how homeschooling um, is really trending as a thing due to COVID-19 and what that really means for our community. Thank you. And uh, yes, we will be weaving these threads together by the time this uh, forum is over. Dr. Marshall, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. All right. Tell everyone who you are and what you do. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm Andrew Marshall. I'm a graduate of Oakwood University um, and Meharry Medical College. I did my emergency medicine training on the south side of Chicago at the University of Chicago, and I recently completed a clinical informatics fellowship at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center uh, in Boston. Um, fun fact that actually uh, I just made the connection that ties me to some of the other panelists. Uh, when I was an undergrad, I did the biophysics uh, summer program uh, at UNC, which actually got me on this path to, uh, towards uh, integrating data science and medicine. I'm currently an emergency medicine physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston um, and a bioinformatics uh, research training fellow at Harvard Medical School. Um, my current areas of interest um, in research, uh, I'm doing research that uh, helps uh, kind of address social determinants of health using technology in the emergency department um, and more recently have shifted gears and more worked on more COVID related research. I looked at uh, disparate effects of the crisis standards of care on COVID-19 and have looked to associate the uh, history of redlining uh, with uh, COVID-19's current effects on our communities. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Marshall. Dr. Juwan Bennett. How are you, Dr. Coleman? It's great uh, to be here this evening. Um, I am in the criminal justice department um, at Temple University. I'm a Philly person, uh, but I also partner with the uh, College um, of Education. And uh, my work centers around the relationship between education um, and crime. 
And I'm a life course uh, criminologist, so I study people from birth to death and really interested in their criminal offending patterns, but how it has um, impacts for their health outcomes, edu education outcomes, and various other outcomes. Um, recently, uh, well, not recently, but for the last about five years, um, with the partnership with the College of Education, we've created something called the Urban Youth Leadership Academy, where we've been working with middle school students and uh, working with them until they finish high school with the whole goals of them completing um, college. And we had our first successful student complete the program. And so we set, we working with her since she was in seventh grade. Um, now she's a college uh, freshman. And um, when I'm not doing that, I'm uh, teaching in prisons, I'm an inside out ambassador. So Temple University was the first uh, university to take students um, into a incarcerated setting and have um, class around particular issues with people who are incarcerated to make for um, transformative, transformative uh, dialogue and change. Wow. Well, thank you. We have a very diverse panel this evening and I am Looking forward to the conversation. Um, before we get started though, on uh, delving into the questions, I wanna let the attendees know we are actually going to be polling. I'm gonna start the poll right now. It's a short poll. It will not impact um, the conversation at all. So um, first question, um, I wanna talk about the historical perspective of black America. So Dr. Hobson, I think you're gonna take the lead on this one. Uh, from a historical perspective, how is the COVID-19 pandemic different from other challenges that African-Americans have faced in this nation post-slavery? Um, well, I'll be glad to take that on. Uh, what makes COVID-19 different than, than other uh, instances in terms of racism, sexism, classism, the whole nine, uh, is the current date. So I, I need to give you just a brief background. Um, as a historian, one should always teach their students that isms, meaning classism, ageism, sexism, racism, whatever, is prejudice plus the use and the abuse of uh, power. So, and, and power creates policy, policy dictates law, and thus we start talking about the legal policies that are set up. And um, this has always been an issue uh, in the United States, even before the United States was set up. I mean, in 1676, you have Bacon's Rebellion that really codifies uh, race into law. And when the nation is formed in 1776, 100 years later, what happens is there was an issue as to what would be done with Africans who were brought here as servants. And as a result of that, several years after the founding of the Constitution, um, you have the three-fifths um, clause, which was done so because it had everything to do with the Electoral College of the United States. Yes. The cause of the Southern United States having so many Africans on a plantation Let's just say if I were a white man who had a plantation with a thousand male slaves, when I would vote, it would count as 601 because three fifths of a thousand is 600. So that's how it worked. And so uh, what was done is that there was a policy put in place for 20 years that basically stated that saltwater Africans or Africans brought from the continent could only come here into 1808. And thus we began to see the first immigration issue. And so throughout the periods uh, in African, in, in the black experience in the United States, you see policies that are put into place. I mean, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1833, you see the, uh, the Amistad decision that basically argued that black people were not citizens. You see the Dred Scott decision that basically argued that black people had no rights that a white man would ever have to, um, have to honor and respect. You see the, um, the 13th Amendment that was founded after slavery that was purely for black people the 14th that granted equal protection and due process under the law, i.e. citizenship, and then the 15th that grants the right to vote. These are the Reconstruction Amendments. But I want to give you all a little bit of a background 
uh, just a little bit more and then we'll move, it, move forward. In 1859, Mississippi was the richest state in the United States. It was King Cotton. So the poorest states in the United States today, which are overwhelmingly in the South, were the richest before the American Civil War. And what happens with this is during this time, just cotton in Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and Georgia equaled about $126 billion. When I say that to you, now you understand why the laws were created to keep these people uh, enslaved because it was big profit. And that's just cotton. We're not talking about the ships. We're not talking about the mills. We're not talking about any of that. And so what we've been dealing with here is in terms of COVID, historically, Black people were seen as the workers. They were, they've always been seen as the workers or the, the, uh, the, the, the consumer class. And as a result of that, you could kill some of them off or you could imprison some of them, but don't kill all of them off because this is going to be our bread and butter in terms of work. But with COVID-19 and with the current president of the United States that we have and several governors, particularly across the American South, who are trying to open things back up, what they're basically saying is kill them all. So this is genocide. So that's what makes this absolutely different is their negligence has created particular genocide amongst black and brown people who oftentimes have pre-existing conditions because of racism. Wow. Yeah. You pretty much summed that one up <laughs> real quick. And, and, and to go back to your three-fifths, I just want to interject this really quickly. I call that the first uh, case of affirmative action, slave, white slaveholders in the South, because they got the three-fifths compromise so that they would benefit them. Um, other panelists, uh, your perspective on the historical aspect from your um, position. Dr. Bennett, let's start with you. How does the criminal justice system and history of that and the pandemic relate for today for African-Americans? You know I'm sorry, me? can you ask your question one more time? I'm sorry. Um, can you hear me? I think my phone went, went out. Can you ask your question one more time? I was going to ask you to yes, put, your, you um, put your spin in. You're freezing up, Dr. Bennett. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Okay, I was asking you to put your uh, spin on the, the historical perspective as uh, COVID-19 is related to the African-American community. How do you see that impact from your, uh, your criminal justice perspective? Oh, I think it's so great. I do a piggyback off the historian. I think one of the things that we see, um, even when the, the passage of the 13th Amendment, which is interesting, as soon as slavery ends, uh, we get something called the convict lease system. Uh, which is particularly interesting is where uh, slavery no longer exists. But what happens is uh, uh, they need people to pick, you know, cotton, need people to till the land. And so the laws are put in a place that says, if you get arrested for a crime, now the state can use you and lease your labor back out to the same plantation in which you work for a fraction um, of the fee. And so when I think about um, the COVID-19 era is really um, interesting and working and talking in prisons. And one thing we have to keep in mind is that, um, uh, we uh, volunteers can't go uh, into prisons right now, but you have individuals uh, who are still incarcerated who still don't have any type of protection, um, any type of mask. And we have a lot of our incarcerated population who are not seeing uh, their particular loved ones. And so when I think when it comes um, into some of the health disparities such as COVID-19, um, some when we think about the least then, um, they're often not protected. So it becomes really interesting in that regard. Okay, thank you. That was Great answer, and I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. Dr. Mays, you have anything you want to add to it? No, not yet. 
Not yet. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Um, Ali Coleman, I'm going to come back to the other two panelists because you guys have um, served with us. Dr. Ali Coleman. So I'm assuming I have the same question in terms of what makes what where, where we are right now different than what we've experienced before. As it what relates I, to I think, your discipline, uh, particularly with education. Yes. With education. Well, well, what I, I think that I know in my lifetime, I've never experienced before um, the closing of schools um, in such a uh, a large scale um, basis where you have parents who are now um, tasked with being the learning curators of their children's education, whether or not they are still connected to the school system or whether they are making the decision to kind of educate themselves from the school system. And I think that in the midst of COVID-19, that this is actually a unique positioning for, the, for those of us of African descent, because for so long, for so many decades, um, if not centuries, we realize how inadequate our, um, our public school system has been in serving the larger needs of our population in general. Um, we are aware of the school to prison pipeline. We are aware of the things that impact our children negatively, whether it is um, from cultural, um, Microaggression, microaggressions to direct uh, a, a very uh, obvious aggression, whether it's the criminalization of our students with police policing in schools, metal detectors, um, criminalizing every behavior where we have a higher proportion of um, black um, boys and girls who are expelled and suspended in comparison to those who are not black. So we are aware of these things that are not new, okay? And so what COVID has really um, offered us, and I say offer because we are in a very um, unique positioning where it is the, we have both the, the choice and the chance to be very overwhelmed, confused and flailing like what in the hot hell is happening <laughs> or we can use this opportunity to um, to see our opportunity to, to take the ownership and the lead in um, schooling our children or making decisions. If we are not the lead curator of their education, making decisions that are not inherently tied to a system that has historically um, not benefited us. I was recently um, watching a, a video that had been shared with me and it was recorded almost 10 years ago um, between, and one of the speakers was a gentleman by the name of Ajay Okoto. And many people may not know that name, but for those who, did I freeze? Am I frozen? No. Okay, because it, it came up and said I, my connection was unstable. Um, but for those who may not be aware, um, Ajay Koto is one of the, the leaders in Black independent schools that were very popular during the 70s. And Black independent schools um, were, if you, if you recall, were during a period of time where many Black people were openly demonstrating and embracing uh, a Pan-African ideology, um, really coming on the heels of some of our civil rights leaders that we're familiar with, name, um, namely Stokely Carmichael, who later became Kwame Ture, okay? So Ajay Okoto actually started a school in Washington, D.C. I actually attended that school for a couple of years um, in its early, back in the 80s, 
I'm not going to tell when, 80-something. Um, <laughs> but this independent school, he, he and a group of, um, in this video, he was talking about as a student, his wife was actually talking about that when the two of them were students at Howard University, it was over 30 of them were, that were looking at the present state of um, Black people during the late 60s. And this is the late 60s now, at their students at Howard, and determining what is it that we have the power to take ownership of and make a change that will make that would directly influence um, our, our community, not just ourselves, but our community. And from that 35, she said, it whittled down to 10. And then ultimately, it was six of them who decided that they were going to go the route of education. And in doing that, they decided to, to create these schools. And the school that they created, um, there were other schools that popped up during the 70s, but the school they created, Nation House Watoto Shule in Washington, D.C., was intended to um, start with the family. So understanding that education is fundamentally or is to be fundamentally connected to the family because as they, because I actually wrote, wrote it down, he had this amazing quote that said that education is the reproductive system of a society, right? You wouldn't expect an antelope to be born from the womb of an elephant. But our children, our, our black children, are so often part of the education system, which is the reproductive system of our society, are to be are often expected to be born from a, a system that and what does that mean? I think Dr. Hobson set the stage um, for us historically in that there has really not been any uh, large, you know, we can look at the Civil Rights Act of 1964, look at, um, at, at, at certain things that can, be, can be, be considered benchmarks, but on a large scale in 2020, we still are experiencing um, at, on grand scale the inequities in our educational system. And so what we are experiencing right now during COVID-19 is a real, is an awakening of sorts for many families where their their idea of family is now so intricately connected in a, a very obvious way with education that offers the opportunity for parents to be more engaged and involved in ways um, unlike ever before. And so that's what I think we're seeing right now. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, Trina, Dr. Dr. Coleman, can I yes. take a stab at this now? Absolutely. <laughs> I want to answer it though from a different perspective if that, if that is okay that's fine um I, I am also a pastor and have pastored for over 25 years and one of the things that COVID-19 has drastically impacted of course is the church mm -hmm. and the church in the black community uh, something that I had actually proposed some years back, maybe about seven years ago, I had proposed virtual church. And it was actually uh, during the time that I was working on my master's degree, I believe, in looking at the use of social media in church. Mm -hmm. But here is one of the, the things about this that has made COVID and then even Black Lives Matter has just completely changed the dynamics in our community and especially in church. We now have a captive audience 
where even the older church is willing to listen to the argument of how did we even arrive at Christianity as our majority religion and as the religion that was handed to us as slave owners. In the virtual space, one of the things that uh, I had a life-changing experience when I traveled to Israel several years ago and a dear Jewish brother joined us in a virtual service. And something that he said to our congregation was, he said, it's a miracle to me that any black American would accept the Christian doctrine. And when he said that, some were floored, some were not, but it brought something to bear, and especially among the younger believers. Mm-hmm. But it opened up just a dialogue that, because it's something that we have not wanted to deal with in the church community, and especially among some of the older But I think something that COVID and Black Lives Matter has introduced, and it's like now we have this captive audience that now we're willing to have some of these honest, open discussions. Doesn't mean that I'm changing my beliefs, doesn't mean any of that. But at least now we're talking about how did we get here? Dr. Hobson, as a historian, how did we get here? How did this start? We're having some of these conversations that I think that we've been running from too long. And now we're able to actually have and embrace ourselves for who we are and how we arrived here. Yeah. I want to say one quick thing before you respond, Dr. Hobson. If you haven't watched Greenleaf, look at the opening credits of Greenleaf. It takes you through that historical, it does it really quickly graphically, but look at those opening credits and you'll see the missionary and all that. Dr. Hobson, take it away. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that that was a real question based towards me, but I mean, you asked the question, how do we No, get- it wasn't, but, but since you, look, but let's go there. Well, you know, um, so I, I want to give you all, I mean, like this, people often assume that history is like the study of, you know, we want to feel good and whatever, whatnot. Goody Mob said it best. Folks don't want to hear the truth. Want you to lie till you make it sound flat to you. Mm-hmm. I'm an honest person, and I will not have my people be fooled. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying is that the games is too, the stakes are too high for us to be out here like this. But this is how it takes place. One of the million dollar questions in the field of history um, is when do Africans become Americans? And by and large, if you are from the American South, deep from it within the American South, my family is from Mississippi and Louisiana. I grew up in Alabama, but I have Mississippi, Louisiana blood down to the coast. That's who we are. Um, the thing about it is a lot of our tactics, a lot of the way in which we understand the world is extremely African, but we accept, uh, but, but we have transitioned to being Americans. And so this is one of the things that I often do with my students. Uh, I walk into a classroom. I, I, I win awards for teaching. They call me the Hulk on campus. They call me the credible Hulk. They say I beat people up in class. And then they say, he's good though. He, he, he's fair. But I find a student and I'll bond with them. And I'll ask the student, I'll say, why are you in this class? And they say, doc, I'm in here to learn about my people. I'm here to learn about me. And I said, that's the wrong answer. And they're like, what do you mean? And I'll ask them, I'll say, how many parents do you have? They say, I have two. I say, how many grandparents? Four, great grandparents, eight. You see where I'm going with this. If you go six to seven generations back, it takes 512 ancestors to make one you. 
a person like myself, who is three-fourths what they call Louisiana Creole, I'm 30% European, 30% native, and then 40% African. Within that African context, six to seven generations back, you have Ashanti, you have Wolof, you have Igbo, you have Abibio. So the thing is that African people who did not know each other had to come together and fight white supremacy and oppression, and that is what's created black culture. And in, the, in that, they took pieces of aspects of culture, things that they could see and identify. If you study African indigenous spirituality, the Ifa, Yoruba, Ubanda, uh, um, Kendoble, uh, Santaria, you begin to understand like the conversation with the Orishas is similar to the angels. It, they basically have been able to use and manipulate. The problem is, is that we now end it with a generation that knows not Pharaoh and they can't remember the actual oppression. So you take the residue, but you never got an understanding of the culture and context in which that culture was created. And so how did we get here? Um, as much hype as the movie uh, Black Panther was, what I think is very useful about that movie is it forces Africa and the diaspora to have a much needed conversation. And, and instead of the Africans saying, oh, you Americans or you people in the Western hemisphere are so bad off, it allows for the persons in the African diaspora to say, why did you forget us? Why did you not come get us? We have to atone within our people before we can do anything else. And when that, when we take place in that, you know, we can see different kinds of spiritual systems. I mean, whether it be, you know, Islam or Judaism or uh, the Ifa or, I mean, black folk are spiritual people by, by and large. But what I'm saying is that when we talk about spirituality, it doesn't have to be so steeped in dogma and doctrine. So I think that we are at a moment right now to where uh, we are trying to make sense in this world that we have been fighting like hell for, in, particularly in the last five minutes. Yeah. And, and to interject right there so that um, we can tie it up with COVID, um, is the church a place, Dr. Mays, where you see I know we're doing it virtually now, but people are coming together. Are they coming to, to the church to try to feel better about the other stresses and strains that they're having during the week that are our lives, our neighborhoods, our education, those issues that we have as black folks? I'm going to release the poll results in a few minutes, but I have one more question after you uh, respond to that one, Dr. Mays. What do you think? Yes, they're still coming to the church. I just think they're coming with a different set of, the lens is different now. They're coming with a different set of questions. They're coming with a different set of, and, and here's the other difference. They're able to attend a number of different services on Sunday instead of just one. I'm able to travel virtually to a number. So they're getting fed a lot and getting fed a lot more. But I think something that Dr. Hobson said, we're trying to heal in the land of our oppression. Ah, okay. And that is something, um, even in regards to COVID, you know, we're trying to heal from something where we have a multitude already of health disparities and we're still trying to heal from these things mentally and physically in the land of our oppression. And so, yes, they're coming and we're able to even be fed even more. All right. 
Well, let me get to Dr. Johnson and Dr. Marshall. Dr. Johnson, you want to jump in here and, and add your comments? Sure. Um, you know, I think one of the ways that this whole thing is different is, um, you know, the last pandemic was 102 years ago in 1918. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just a combination, it wasn't just the flu, but it was a combination of flu plus black bacteria. Uh, and, you know, that's, you know, in, even then there was some, you know, racism in that particular uh, pandemic as we still call it the Spanish flu, right? It's, it was just a flu, it didn't really have to have a country associated with it. And that's not even actually where it came from. Uh, most like, you know, and today we have it, you know, we're calling it the Wu flu or the Chinese flu. No, it's, it's COVID, it's SARS-CoV-2. There, there doesn't have to be a racial undertone to this particular virus. It's just the virus itself. Uh, so, well, I guess those things are actually the same. Uh, I think that we move around a little bit more these days as far as like how it might be different uh, than we did in uh, 1918. Uh, and there's a little bit more globalization there. Uh, but one thing that, you know, the more things change, some, sometimes the more things stay the same. And what I, what I would like to actually concentrate on here is we, um, you know, science has always been politicized. And science is, you know, and it's been politicized by, you know, um, you know, government has been politicized within different races and how we kind of view different experiments to our different communities. Uh, but, you know, and now that people are more home and, you know, they can be Google warriors, uh, now they feel like they can actually, you know, dive into some of that literature that we've, you know, spent the last 20 years trying to figure out, you know, uh, through, uh, on our own. Um, and it's, it can be helpful to be empowered by knowing the research and you know I fully want people to know what it is that we're up against here but it can also be a little bit daunting because there's just so much stuff out there and that's one thing that's different there's more information out there for you to actually obtain than there ever has been in the past and you know you can find that information about history you can find information about uh science you can find information about religion uh and that's kind of the biggest thing here the, the the thing that has changed is access to that information whether or not people do have access to it is another story but that access uh that inform uh, the, the level of information has actually uh drastically changed okay dr marshall First, I just want to say that the, the level of expertise on this panel uh, in all these different areas is so impressive. Um, you know, I just want to take a little bit of, I think what everybody has kind of talked about, um, you guys coming from a healthcare perspective have talked a little bit about the social determinants of health, right? Um, the 80% of things that kind of make up, uh, you know, the health of everyone in our country. Um, you know, we're at a time with historically, this is different because um, we can actually you know, these disparities that are emerging in the health of the African-American community can't actually be ignored. Um, and that is part of, partly because of social media, uh, which signs a spotlight on all of these things. In a previous pandemic or anything like this, you know, these things could be hidden. But now we have phones to, you know, videotape uh, what's going on in hospitals, what's going on with police brutality and all that stuff. Uh, when we think about, uh, I'm not going to even try to compete with the historian on this, but when we think about like, 
the history of like redlining, which has led to our communities having different levels of access to healthcare, different levels of access to healthy food, different levels of access to education, uh, transportation. Um, these things are now coming to light in a really powerful way. Um, and it, this is interesting because now we, we see, I wanna to touch on access to care in particular, um, we see that African-Americans are getting sick more and are getting sicker. And the answer is probably multifactorial. Probably very little of it is actually, you know, has anything to do with genetics, but has, you know, everything to do with comorbidities, which has everything to do with access to food and, and, and healthcare in before COVID. Um, and then you have this built-in mistrust of the medical system. Uh, that is preventing people from enrolling in vaccine studies, uh, preventing people from trusting the system because of the, of the history of the Tuskegee syphilis studies and stuff like that, um, that are ultimately, you know, you know, making, helping people believe the misinformation that's being spread. Um, and that is, you know, compounding this. Um, and then, you know, to compound this even more, we have policies put, being put in place like the crisis standards of care, which allocates scarce resources that could actually disparately affect African-American communities. Um, so historically, this is the first time all these things have been kind of brought to light and there are no actual distractions for us to, 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 to look at, to look away from this. And then everybody, including politicians, even politicians on both sides are having to recognize the genocide that is happening. I think you're on mute. Trina, we can't hear you. I got you. Uh, <laughs> yes. I said I wanted to transition now, and uh, I, we have 100% participation in from our poll. But before I show you guys the results of our poll, um, I'd like you to take two or three minutes and answer the question yourself. And then I'll show you what everybody, what percentage people said. So in your opinion, what is the major problem African-Americans face as a result of the pandemic? I'm not gonna tell you what the choices were, but I would like to hear your uh, response. Let's start with uh, Dr. Bennett. You've been a little quiet. What is oh. the major problem African-Americans face according to you? Well, I think one of the biggest problems, um, I, I come from the intersection of um, education and crime. And one of the biggest things, um, uh, I worked um, in Philadelphia, I worked in the My Brothers Keeper Initiative. One of the things I think one of the biggest uh, challenges we face is um, access to mainstream opportunities. So what you'll see is um, in the My Brothers Keeper Initiative, they had a, a milestone on there that they wanted all uh, kids to be able to read um, in third grade by third grade reading level. And what was happening was they were predicting bigger uh, prisons based off those third grade reading scores. And so, which is really interesting, the reason why we decided to be in the middle school space is what you realize is if individuals don't get uh, access to a quality high school, we know that even though uh, the dropout rate uh, is, is increasing, uh, is, is doing a good job for African-Americans, it still uh, falls behind uh, white counterparts. So the dropout rate is still particularly high. And once we know from a criminal justice um, standpoint, once people drop out, that's a major leader to crime. And so um, people talk about the school to prison pipeline uh, like uh, 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 very heavily. But one thing we don't talk about um, is that if there could be a school to prison pipeline, the pipeline at least the prison, then the inverse can be true and that we can build pipelines to success. And I think we have to call on politicians and leaders and social scientists to figure out what those pipelines are and to figure out those mainstream opportunities. And I think one thing as it relates to the McNair Scholars Program, I mean, that was one of the big, you know, attributes to help 
first generation, you know, students and underrepresented groups gain access to the PhD level. When we think about programs like that on the middle school and high school level, they're virtually um, slim to none. And so we have to think about how do we get equitable mainstream opportunities for young people um, when they're, they're younger. And I know for me, uh, being a first generation college student, the first time I heard about financial aid, college admission, uh, the writing center was in 12th grade. <laughs> and oftentimes, um, um, that's, that's, that's too late. Yes, I agree. Okay, Dr. Johnson. I would say that the, politi the politicization of science is kind of the, the biggest thing. I think that if uh, it wasn't so you against us and, you know, we would have kind of been like some of the other countries and got the curve way down and then we would be talking about just racism and not racism plus COVID. Uh, so if, it's, if, we're, if we're talking about, you know, kind of a scientific thing, it's, it's, it, that, that, has to be, uh, that has to be it for me. Yep. Dr. Marshall, since you're on the front line especially, <laughs> I know you have a different perspective. What? Mike, there you go. Um, so I actually agree with uh, Michael. I think it's the politicization of science. Um, I, I think that um, that plays a role in um, making people less likely to receive healthcare because they just don't know what to trust. Um, and so I think that, you know, without receiving that proper healthcare, we're putting ourselves at risk without following the recommendations put out by scientists. We're putting our communities at increased risk. Okay. Dr. Mays, number one problem facing African-Americans during this pandemic. I would agree definitely with Dr. Marshall and Dr. Johnson. I'm just going to add to that. So including with that, just all of the, the misinformation to go along with that. And, and then access to large scale access to all of this misinformation. And we know how fast that travels in our communities. Yes. I think we lost Dr. Um, Ali Coleman. Hopefully she can join us back. All right, Dr. Hobson, your turn. You know, uh, I, I agree with what was said before. Uh, I just want to take it a step further. Um, one of the things that COVID has exposed is inequality across the board. I mean, you know, we talk about food deserts and, and gentrification and health, healthcare access, but education. I mean, um, I have a six-year-old son. And uh, my wife and I were blessed to be able to, to have all the resources for him, computers, internet, and that, that whole piece. But uh, we have a generation of black and brown children who will be set back by this if they don't have the adequate resources. And even, even our college kids uh, here in Atlanta uh, with our, our famed historically black colleges, you know, Morehouse, Spelman, Clark, Atlanta, um, ITC. Uh, one of the things that we saw when this took place was uh, that our HBCUs and, and universities like Georgia State University are vehicles for first-generation students to really move forward and getting the access to uh, what they believe is American middle class and, and how that works. I mean, like, you know, that's, that's all tangible in, in different ways. But when this pandemic hit and schools went online, most of the students did not have the resources at home. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have the computers. And so uh, I think that that's a byproduct of the polit politicization of COVID-19 and the us versus them. I mean, you know, what we have coming out of 
the White House is, has been genocide, uh, for lack of a better word. I mean, you know, pitting the scientists know what this is, and we have to listen to what they're saying. So, all right. So here are the results from our attendees. If you can see them on your screen, um, most of them are first time attendees of the forum. Welcome attendees. But uh, looking at what the options were, health disparities won by way, way big margin, uh, criminal justice, misinformation, education, economic challenges ranked second. So um, those are in other, nobody um, chose other, but um, those are what our panel, um, our attendees have um, put in the poll. So we did have a question in the um, Q&A box. You have access to that, Linnell? Or did I just screw the whole thing up? <laughs> Sorry. Okay, we have um, a, a comment and a question. Health disparities, no matter at which, which stage, is, ser is a serious problem, whether it be dying or treatment. People of color are treated differently. How can we change that? Can we change that? <laughs> Anybody want to take a stab at that question? Happy to take a stab at it because I was actually writing uh, writing an answer. Um, oh, great! Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think it's a really it's a good question um, that all over the country we're struggling to figure out how to um, answer. Um, but basically, I, I think if you think about it in two parts, one is that we need to um, increase the awareness of the biases that already exist in the current healthcare population, which means that um, we need to do uh, a better job of letting people know that there, there is bias that exists, right? That means doctors, nurses, you know, doing triage, uh, need to be aware that, you know, sometimes even though they may not be personally racist or feel that they're racist, they have implicit bias that affect uh, treatment. And two, we have to have more people inside of the system, right? So this goes all the way down the pipeline to like the educational uh, realm, right? We, we've got to, you know, provide better education for African-American and, and black students uh, and allow them to get into positions where they can uh, be physicians, nurses, you know, healthcare workers, and also like, uh, drive health policy um, to create better policies. Okay. Dr. Marshall, I think you brought up a really good point. Sorry to jump in here, but I, I, I feel like I have to say something about this as well. One of the things that have to do with how people perceive how healthcare is going and at least how we're dealing with this whole pandemic is um, the scientific process. And people basically, you know, if, if you, if you if you if you think about it, you want to run a controlled trial of, with a drug. How do you do that? So, like, really, like, write down a bunch of stuff and try and figure out how you would do that. How many people do you enroll? What are the types of people you enroll as far as like socioeconomically, race, gender? How many people do you give it? How do you run it? Where do you advertise? All these things go into a study. A lot of things go into running an experiment too. And the thing is, sometimes experiments don't work. They don't. Your hypothesis is wrong. But we're scientists and we're okay with our hypothesis being wrong. But the perception is you were wrong. And that's not what science is. And we have to kind of get over that. Like what you're seeing in real time is the scientific process in motion. That's how we operate. We revise, we refine. We revise, we refine. We revise, oh great. Now we actually have a drug you can take. It isn't just like, 
oh, boom, this worked in this one person over here, everybody should take it. That's not how we do studies. That's not how you should want us to do studies because that's how you end up with a lot of, you know, you could end up with thalidomide kind of thing. Like, I mean, there, there's so many different, you know, things that you could, uh, you know, end up with if you just approach science from that particular perspective. So what, uh, what people are now seeing is the scientific process and, hey, sorry, it's messy, but we, we're, we have to do our due diligence to get the right answer at the end. And it takes time and you don't want us to rush this. And that can lead to perceptions of, you know, they don't care about my health care because they're not giving me this drug. Well, we don't know about that drug yet, or we did all these controlled trials and we saw that it had no benefit or it would be harmful. So, you know, it, there's a system here that, you know, and, you know, again, that scientific system is different from a governmental system, is different from, you know, all these, you know, all, it's different from the, you know, all, all these different pillars are kind of independent in this this whole uh, milieu of things that we're dealing with. So I just, I had to, I had to state the claim about the, the whole, this is how science works. No worries, no worries. I just want to add very quickly, Trina, mm-hmm. and we talked about this last time. And in my space, you know, we're having conversations with medical professionals about empathy and compassion in treating patients and all patients and not just patients of color, but especially when you are interacting with communities and you're interacting with patients of uh, in black and brown communities and making sure that you are treating them. And what I like to say, you know, you're treating them as if this was your mother, this was your uh, friend, your, your parent, your child. You need to interact and engage with them as if this was someone that you cared about. And so engaging with them with a level of empathy and a level of compassion and making sure that you are checking those by and we're, you know, going through bias mitigation because we need to really watch for those things um, in this space and in this time. Okay. Especially now when people don't have access to their loved ones. Right. That is a serious problem. Um, I do have uh, another question, and it's about education. I think we lost Dr. Uh, Ali Coleman, but um, you guys are certainly capable of answering this one. And uh, the question reads like this. It says, I feel that starting schools back will impact the people of color communities at a much higher degree due to multi-gen families, poverty, socialization, and education. What can we do as parents, professionals, et cetera, to change these um, reactions, how can we protect our future generations? Anybody have an opinion on starting school early? <laughs> uh, I think that, I think one of the things that we can all do is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of a simple public health thing. I mean, just wash your hands, wear a mask. I mean. I don't think that these things should be minimized here. You know, it is, you know, if you can reduce the spread by 30% then in a month, then we'll, we could be out of this. In two months, we could be out of this. But if you have people protesting on like trying to burn masks and saying my mask, my choice, like that's not the way to get out of this. Uh, so 
you know, be, digi be vigilant about washing your hands, be vigilant about wearing masks. That doesn't necessarily, again, address the what can we do as educators thing, but if you're addressing how can we get to a point of normalcy so we can actually begin to come together as a community to, to address these uh, education things, then first we kind of got to get out of the pandemic. So wear a mask, distance, wash your hands. Those are things that everybody can do to get out of this. Right. Um, that goes back to the misinformation piece or information, which, you know, like I said earlier, all these threads are going to wind together. And um, right now, um, Carl or Linnell, do you have any questions that you'd like to ask our panelists? Um, yes. Uh, one thing I was kind of surprised about was, um, and that's not to say, I feel like everyone gave really great answers to your earlier question um, about what is most impactful. Um, but for me, my first thought was the socioeconomics, essentially. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think that all of the things that we've talked about uh, so far tie into class. They tie into, um, you know, uh, which ties into race and all of these other things. And so I'm very curious about uh, whether or not uh, you guys have any more thoughts about the sort of socioeconomic impacts um, of COVID-19, how it ties into, for instance, the healthcare system, when you think about um, who gets access to, you know, private, uh, private healthcare versus like folks who gets Medicaid or Medicare. Um, when you think about education, um, you know, thinking about districts, thinking about, um, you know, who has resources or access to, you know, internet or, or other things that they need to actually get a proper education. Um, because it's kind of obvious right now that like folks who are in like the upper class are perfectly fine in terms of the way they're sort of dealing with this pandemic and in COVID-19. I can't tell you the number of times I've interacted with my colleagues here at Harvard and they, they're like, oh, I'll just go to my, my house in New Hampshire and like use the internet there. And, and, you know, my kids have a homeschool teacher, et cetera. And so I think it greatly impacts like all of the things that you guys have talked about so far really uh, boil down to not just the, uh, you know, politics of, of science, but also like uh, socioeconomic class, um, especially. And so it would be great to hear some of you guys comment on that as well. So, so this is the thing about the whole class piece. Um, folk don't really know how class is really stratified and qualified. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example of something just really quickly. When Karl Marx wrote uh, his treatise and really broke down class and, you know, broke down the six levels of class, the elite, uh, the bourgeois, the petty bourgeois, the proletariat, the lumpen proletariat, all that is good and well in Europe. But when you put American racism on it, it breaks it down totally different. And so in the United States, when we begin to talk about class, do you all know what the, historically, what the variable of what determined class was? It's not money, it's behavior. And that's behavior based on a Eurocentric view of what black people are supposed to do. And by nature, Europeans are individualist and African-centered people are uh, collective. And so when we begin to talk about class, I think, I think one of the conversations is an issue of wealth. Now, of course, you know, we have to live four lifetimes of 70 years to amass the same generational wealth of, as a normal white person. And I use normal with air quotes very loosely. But what we're talking about here is money. We're talking about resources. And when, you, when we begin to understand how, you know, COVID has shut things down and you have small businesses that aren't able to get the kind of funding uh, you got, you, you have all of these different things that has greatly impacted us. But if you're dead, it doesn't matter if you have the money. And so when, in the conversation around that, I live in Atlanta, wrote a book on Atlanta that competed for a Pulitzer National Book Award, Bancroft, 
called The Legend of the Black Mecca, there are 14 different Black Atlantas in this city. Numbers one through five and nine through 14 had nothing in common. So we, you know, with that being said, we have a lot to kind of wade through when we begin to talk about socioeconomic variables and how that impacts and where people live and who they are on some different things, so. Okay. Dr. Mays, did you want to say something? No, I'm not going to hold us up no. at this time. <laughs> Very well spoken. Well, I, I had something I wanted to add. Thank you. Go ahead, Carl. Uh, I, I'm just really grateful to see so many of you engage with this because on this panel, we have at least four McNair scholars or those who mentor McNair, McNair scholars. And uh, I'm really grateful for the fact that, that you all have engaged with them and have uh, even Dr. Hobson has spoken to a few McNair conferences and what have you, and so we're grateful for that. Actually, my question had to do with two of the our McNair scholars who just left. <laughs> <laughs> it had to do with education. Yeah. One of the things that have come to, to, to my attention is most recently there was a 15-year-old young, young lady. She was on probation, it appears, for stealing something. Part of her probation was to do her homework, you know, homeschool, etc. She did not do her homework. The judge thought it was necessary for her to go into juvenile detention. Juvenile detention is just another jail, word for jail. And if they were here, my criminal justice person was here, I was going to want to ask. At least put it on, put it on the, uh, you know, put it on the table here, that things like this are happening under the, under the, under the, under the uh, cover of COVID-19. How many more of our young people are being in prison for missing their homework for various and sundry reasons? Uh, there is, I would just say, leave with this. There is a company called Correction Corporation of America. It's the largest private prison management company, perhaps in the world. They're listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So is it important to fill those beds with heads? I think you know the answer to that. Could we be filling those beds with young people because of what's going on right now and young people are not being able to, to uh, I guess, live up to what they're being asked in order to stay out of it? Mm -hmm. It's an open question. That's it. Okay. Um, there was a lot of stuff packed in there, Carl. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it, it needed to be said. And um, I agree. And the way I feel about that whole homework thing is the fact that before the pandemic, those students not turning in homework every day. <laughs> they weren't coming in the classroom and taking them to jail from the classroom. So I don't understand why this happened in the first place. This, I mean, I feel like, especially in uh, low income, high minority areas, there tends to be this sort of um, relationship with like the police. So I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I went to a predominantly black high school my entire life. I grew up in a predominantly black city. 
And I think that as I was going through my like grade school education on through, the police was kind of dangled in front of our faces all the time. Like they would come to our schools and basically essentially tell us if you were bad, you were either gonna end up dead or in jail. And I think that there's this sort of relationship that we have with the police officers and in, in the police force in our neighborhoods. Um, and this sort of like binary um, idea of what it means to be a black person. You're either a really exceptional, good, you know, great person or you're someone that's gonna end up in jail or dead. Um, and I think that's a, a message that we tend to get very, very young. Um, and so I think that causes, um, I think, I'm not going to say that's the root cause of it, but I, I definitely think that there's this sort of um, weird relationship and sort of like ease for us to sort of go there and, and sort of like over police, uh, not just, you know, on the side of police officers, but amongst each other in our community and the way that we talk to each other and the way that we educate our, our children um, and the way that we sort of speak to them um, is something that I've sort of like see not only in my own experience, but um, and the experiences of the, the folks that I, I grew up with as well. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious as to how much um, that sort of plays into it. Um, yeah. Wow. Well, I, I think it's time for us to start wrapping up. So in closing, I would like each of the panelists to speak to whatever their heart is telling them to say right now about how we as black folks can try to make a little bit of sense out of what's happening to us right now. Because one of the things that we have talked about amongst ourselves, me and Carl and Linnell, is the fact that mental health is a big challenge right now. And this thing is wearing us down. And we were already worn down. Now we're getting beat down by a pandemic. So, um, what would you like to say to our attendees uh, or just to us? What, what, what do you want to say about how we can move forward just to tomorrow, how we get to tomorrow and, and make tomorrow feel okay? I'll, I'll take it. I'll, I'll just be really brief. Uh, if we're going to stay in this country and we're going to believe in the United States of America, we first and foremost need to vote. We need to figure out what the issues are. We need to put people over politics, we need to truly drain the swamp, and we need to hold our elected officials accountable. And regardless of whether you're Republican or Democrat and anything and everything in between, we need you to be more humane. We need you to make decisions based on how we can better all people. And if, if we were just able to, if we could just get a half of the, the, the elected officials to be that way and not play this game of politics, I think that will be much better because politics can, it can get us more masks, it can get us, it can get us a lot more in terms of accessibility, uh, in terms of education, it can right some wrongs. I'm not saying that we're supposed to be a utopic society, but it can right some wrongs. And so if we're gonna be in this country, we have to, we have to you know, put our feet to the pavement and get out here. We have, to, we have to do something different. We have to vote in a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. Vote uh, is the most important thing uh, to protect your neck, right? So, you know, nobody else is going to look out for you, right? The governor of whatever state you're in is not necessarily going to look out for you in your community because ultimately, sometimes America is a profit and then, like Dr. Hobson alluded to earlier, they got to protect their profit. Um, and so it, you have to look out for you. Um, you have to take care of yourself, even if you know your friends and family and 
stuff like that aren't doing it, look out for yourself, wear your mask, wash your hands, take the proper precautions. And two, I'm gonna close with this, and this is just to implore everybody who's on this panel, anybody who's listening, don't be afraid to enroll in, um, in studies. Don't be afraid to enroll in the vaccine studies because if none of, if all of us are afraid and none of us enroll, we never know how this will affect our community. Um, and we need that representation in science um, so that you know we can get the best care that we need. And you have to, I know it's tough to trust the system, but you have to you know, take a leap of faith and think that know that there are people inside the system that are looking out for our community. Okay. Along those lines, um, there's a saying that we kind of have, uh, at least you know, some of the NIH-funded uh, researchers in Fauci we trust. Uh, if Fauci says it, <laughs> it, you can you can take that you can take that word as bond. You can take that word as bond. Uh, Tony Fauci has you know our best interests, and he's still speaking his mind despite being attacked and getting death threats, lots and lots of death threats. Uh, and he's still out there trying to, you know, um, trying to do the right thing. Uh, you know, he has amplified a lot of great scientists. Uh, one is Kismikia Corbett, who also works at the NIH. She's a black female scientist who is really uh, working. He, she basically has been very instrumental in making uh, the, the vaccine with uh, Moderna and the one that's going into trials there. So look up our black scientists and support our black scientists so that we can actually uh, help you all out. Kizmikia Corbett, K-I-Z-Z-E-M-I-K-I-C-O-R-B-E-T-T. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> we'll Google it. If, yeah, Google it. She'll she'll show up. I promise you, she'll show in. up. She will connect too. All right, Dr. May. Absolutely. Um, I'm gonna just share three words. So in much the same vein, just education, vote, absolutely, and then community. We have to support. We have to support one another. We have to support. We have to band together. We are the solution. Um, as Dr. Marshall said, we need to go to school. We need to seek education. Um, we need to be in every avenue of change. We need to be in every avenue of transformation. We need to be in every avenue of progress. We need to be everywhere. Everywhere that they can think to lock us out of, we need to be there. But we also need to come back and be together right. and stand and support one another. We need to be legitimate community again. And we I, need to uphold each other. I agree. And um, one of the things to go back to our theme, um, yeah, I'm sorry, Dr. Coleman had to drop off, but education, as we have stated, has been an underlying current during this conversation. And um, I think that, you know, now that parents are going to be teachers, the parents in a lot of cases need to be educated themselves. So we have a lot of layers to peel back that are peel, being peeled back now as a result of COVID-19. 
And uh, this kind of goes back to uh, how we started this conversation off with Dr. Hobson, talking about the historical aspects of, of African-Americans in this country, post-slavery. And um, we, we still have first gens. I think we had a first gen on, on the panel. I'm a first gen as well. And so, you know, having those types of challenges, although they may be triumphs, but at the same time, it's a challenge. Um, in our homes, in our communities, in our schools, are exacerbating this COVID-19 issue for us as African-Americans. That's my two cents. You have anything in closing, Linnell? No, thank you all so much. Your expertise was like much appreciated and I really appreciate all of you guys like being a part of this panel. Um, I guess I do have an announcement for next week, but I'll let Carl go. No, I thought you were going, that's fine. I want to make sure that you went there because, you know, that's very important to this whole process. Linnell, go ahead. So uh, for those of you guys who have registered, if you noticed, we also asked if you wanted to participate next week. Um, we're gonna be having a sort of think tank. Um, many of you guys have already gotten emails about which teams you're gonna be a part of. If you haven't gotten an email, uh, please email me. I've sent like 6,000 emails between you know the past couple of weeks. 7,000. <laughs> um, and uh, I'll make sure that I place you in a team and uh, make sure that you confirm that you're gonna be attending essentially um, and it also has the agenda, but essentially next week we'll be sort of recapping what happened between the two panels, um, you know, grouping you guys together to talk about uh, what the problems are, thinking about very concrete solutions. And at the end, hope the goal is to ensure that each team has a one page white page um, that uh, will sort of represent a project they can execute within the community. Um, I'd like to announce that we do have some like uh, funding essentially. Um, so we'll be able to fund uh, uh, two projects up to about you know $500, some seed funding uh, to help start a project um, uh, within the community and any projects that are related to um, outreach and STEM or you know outreach and STEM education in particular um, will go uh, through um, Harvard's physics department. There are some like uh, groups there that are interested in possibly like supporting some of those projects and I'm also working on uh, supporting a project through the Women of Color Project um, as well. So if there are any interest anyone interested in collaborating with us and we can like provide some funding for you that is directly related to stem outreach um we're, we're happy to do that and include that in our budget this year um and so yeah make sure you attend next week um if you have any questions send me shoot me an email um thank you to all of the panelists i'll let trina have the last word since she started oh okay no i have a surprise too i forgot to tell you guys um Larry King, who is the uh, founder, editor-in-chief, and uh, chief ambassador of the STEM News uh, Technical, STEM Technical Journal, STEM News Chronicle, they're two different names. Anyway, what's, what he wants to do is to dedicate an edition of the STEM News Chronicle to this effort. He said he wants to do a complete exclusive so that whatever you, we want to compile, write about, whatever, he will publish it and we will have our own edition of STEM News Chronicle. So I thought it was pretty cool. And thank you. You guys were awesome. And uh, this was a pleasure. And thank I hope you. that we did bring, uh, well, I know we brought useful information and engaging conversation to our attendees. And so, Mr. McNair, you want to say your final? Roger that. 
<laughs> That's how oh, we end it. We're done. Thank you all. We appreciate the viewers and we appreciate those who participated in the forums. Thank you. Thank you so much. Fill out the feedback survey. Thank you all. Thank you all. Great. I'm Carl McNair, and I just want to thank you for joining us once again for part two of Flattening the Curve.